Good afternoon. It is one o'clock. I'm Jacqueline LaBelle in downtown London. We have freezing fog. It's zero degrees minus six with a wind chill. The conditions out on area roads are much better today than yesterday, but things still aren't perfect. Environment Canada still has us under a freezing drizzle advisory. Officials say we are also in for strong winds tonight, gusting between 60 and 80 kilometers per hour. That could last into tomorrow. Anyone heading out on the roads should plan extra time and slow down. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau says allegations that his office pressured former Attorney General Jody Wilson-Raybould to help SNC-Lavalin avoid a criminal prosecution are false. The Quebec engineering and construction giant allegedly paid millions of dollars in bribes to get government business in Libya. Wilson-Raybould could have directed federal prosecutors to negotiate a remediation agreement, which would allow SNC to say it was not at fault for things certain employees did. But the Globe and Mail reports she refused in the face of repeated lobbying by Trudeau's aides. It was a full house at the Lenin Convention Center this morning where hundreds of community leaders gathered for an annual breakfast in support of young people. The event, put on by Youth Opportunities Unlimited, is raising money for a large affordable housing project downtown. Three properties at the corner of Richmond and York Streets are being turned into affordable housing units and a wellness hub. The space is geared towards young people, like the five who shared personal stories during this morning's event. Lucas Frampton says he was struggling with addiction and relationships when he was first connected to YOU. I don't know exactly what's next for me, but I want to keep this trajectory going. I want my future to be tremendous and to continue to push myself out of my comfort zone, like today, for example. I've been, I've been thinking more about post-secondary. I've felt torn between going into the fashion or makeup program, and lately I've been curious about social services. Brampton says he wants to use the voice that YOU has helped him find. YOU helps vulnerable young people in a variety of ways, ranging from education and employment to health care. The Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives' fifth annual survey of child care fees finds the cost of full-time regulated child care spaces has risen faster than inflation in 61% of cities it reviewed, including London. The centre found costs were the highest in the Greater Toronto Area and lowest in Quebec, Manitoba and PEI, the three provinces that have had fixed fees for years. Canadian Centre for Policy Alternative senior economist David McDonald tells 980 CFPL costs have been climbing in London. This last year uh, saw just over a 3% increase in London, which is close to the rate of inflation. Now, we've been doing this survey over the past five years, and over that period, fees have increased at about twice the rate of inflation. So particularly in the first couple of years, there were some big increases in London, although uh, a little bit more manageable uh, in the past year. The Senate's economists believe federal government policies aimed at lowering fees will lead to an overall decrease in prices for the first time in five years. London's Ice Dancing Darlings are coming to town for the annual Sports Celebrity Dinner and Auction. The event's chair, Ryan Robinson, made the announcement on the Craig Needle Show this morning that Scott Moyer and Tessa Virtue will be honored at this year's event. He tells 980 CFPL the pair will be London Sports People of the Year. They've been to the event before, uh, you know, as, as attendees on the head table, but we said we really wanted to, uh, you know, additionally recognize them for everything, not only they've done over the years for, for Thames Valley Children's Centre, uh, but uh, in the London sports community. Uh, they obviously had the event in Ilderton. The pair were recognized on Canada's Walk of Fame in December and were inducted in London Sports Hall of Fame back in 2010 after winning gold in the 2010 Vancouver Winter Olympics. The 63rd edition of the annual event is set for April 1st at the London Convention Centre. You're listening to 980 CFPL.
It is February 7th, 2019. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on London Live. Mike will be back with you tomorrow. Speaking of tomorrow, it'll be a very special day for 980 CFPL and Chorus Radio London. Craig's show and Mike's show will be live from the annual uh, Chorus Radiothon to benefit the Children's Hospital. I will be live from noon to 1 p.m. for an extended version of the 96 Take. We'll be at the atrium of the Children's Hospital. We'll be talking to kids, families, doctors, nurses about the Children's Hospital, about the stories and the lives they've led there and the amount of people they've been able to help. It's always a special day of the year for us here at Chorus Radio London. The generosity of Londoners always shines through. We will have a reporter at the hospital in the morning as well. So if you would like to donate, you can do that already. You can just go to 980cfpl.ca and you can just find the link to donate. So that's for tomorrow. It's going to be a great day. But as for today, we've got a busy show for you. On today's program, we'll be talking about how expensive childcare continues to be in this country, this province, and this city. We'll be talking about the rising number of organ donations in Ontario. We'll talk about Health Canada's efforts to reduce the places vaping companies can advertise. We'll talk about the impact that screen time can have on a child's development. We'll talk about privacy concerns that have been raised about how cavalier some of our political parties are acting. And we'll talk about the number of Canadians who retire and then regret it. The numbers might surprise you. Up first... One of the things I miss most about hosting a daily show is the opportunity just to give my opinion on topics as they roll out. I could do that on Twitter, could do that on social media, but that's really not an effective platform as far as I'm concerned. What I want to talk about is water fluoridation. We've talked about it a lot in this city over the past decade or more. I think we've reached our limit for that, but that's part of what I want to get to today. As you are aware, the debate returned to the Civic Works Committee on Tuesday. This is the third time fluoride in the water has been debated in London over the past 10 years. I'm all for debating topics that can be emotional or uncomfortable. We should not shy away from those. I'm all for citizens having the ability to raise issues before their city council and sparking a debate about public policy. But what I am not for is having the same conversation over and over and over again. Just because something did not go your way does not mean you get to keep going at it until you get your way. We debate something, we decide, we move on. Later, we can review that decision, we can then debate it and then move on. But we don't debate, decide, debate, decide, debate, decide, Debate decide when the decision is always the same. So, for example, I think London made a mistake getting rid of border control. I voted to keep border control, but the decision was made and we move on. It is a waste of everyone's time, mine, yours, city staff, and city politicians, to be debating fluoride in the water again less than 10 years after we debated it twice during the Fontana eight years. It is a waste of time, and it's going to continue to be a waste of time, thanks to a decision made by the Civic Works Committee on Tuesday. They voted 4-2 in favor of having city staff look into reducing the amount of fluoride we put into the water from 0.7 parts per million to 0.6 parts per million. 
Sean Lewis, Elizabeth Peloza, Phil Squire, and Michael Van Host voted for that. Ed Holder and Steve Lehman voted against it. Reputable scientific studies conducted over the past 70 years have consistently shown that fluoridation of community water supplies is a safe and effective way to prevent dental decay in both children and adults. Community water fluoridation is recommended by public health, medical, and dental groups, including the Canadian and American Dental Associations. It's recommended by Canada's Chief Dental Officer and the World Health Organization. The U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention have called it its contribution to the declining cavities one of the 10 great public health achievements of the 20th century. Here in Ontario, fluoride additives must meet rigorous standards of quality and purity before they can be used. Studies have shown that when fluoride is added to the water at recommended levels in Ontario and across the country, it is not linked to any adverse health effects. Health Canada has determined that the optimal concentration of fluoride in drinking water for dental health is 0.7 parts per million. Acute fluoride toxicity occurring from the ingestion of optimally fluorided water is impossible. So, when Sean Lewis, Elizabeth Peloza, Phil Squire, and Michael Van Host vote to have city staff look at London moving away from a Health Canada recommendation, what they are saying is there might be something wrong with our water when that is not the case. Either we believe Health Canada or we don't. So the Civic Works Committee made a mistake voting the way they did on Tuesday. Windsor recently voted to put fluoride back in their drinking water. Cities that have removed it in recent years have had seen tooth decay in their citizens. We can debate this topic over time, but we should not be debating it over and over and over when there's no new information to suggest that our previous decision was wrong. Furthermore, Ward 1 deserves better than what they got from Michael Van Holst on Tuesday. He wasted everyone's time with a eight-minute speech he gave on the topic that ended with this comment comparing water fluoridation to Bill Cosby. We need to look at this science, and I have a fear that fluoridation is going to turn out to be the Bill Cosby of water treatment processes because it's something that we have thought was uh, irreproachable, but maybe behind the scenes, it's actually doing great harm. So that's something we need to take seriously. Bill Cosby, of course, is currently in jail for drugging and raping a woman. He has been accused of drugging and sexually assaulting a number of women. There is no comparison between Bill Cosby and putting fluoride in our water. To make that comparison is ridiculous, it's silly, and it's stupid. Before Van Holst got to that comparison, he had a visual where he brought out 100,000 cinnamon candies in plastic bins to try to make a point about how the level of fluoride in toothpaste compared to the amount of fluoride in the water. And yet he spoke about how dangerous fluoride in the water could be. He spent five minutes wasting everyone's time with this, then needed an extension to lecture the committee about how they should pay attention to the evidence that shows fluoride is bad or pointless. 
A lot of his evidence came from the 1990s and in one case, the 1970s. In case you are just waking up from a decades-long sleep, it's 2019. There is evidence out there that shows fluoride is harmful, but you need to check the circumstances around which those studies were done and how it was checked. Not all applies. Do we believe in the health officials in this country or do we not? There was a study done that looked at fluoride in water in China in a remote region that found it to be unhealthy, but that's not applicable here. You would have had to drink four liters of water a day, every day for a month for there to be possible repercussions. Fluoride in the water has been around for decades at this point, and there is nothing to suggest the decision was harmful to Canadians. Michael Van Holst often likes to comment at council about how he used to be a comedian, or he used to be a teacher, or he used to be this or that. We should try acting like a counselor for a change. His performance on Tuesday was an absolute joke in Ward 1, and the citizens of London deserve better. It's not the first time he's gone off on a rambling tangent. It won't be the last. Three and a half years ago, when London was deciding whether or not to join a UN-linked group to fight climate change, Van Hol said the threat of climate change is, quote, ridiculously exaggerated, that we should ignore it. This is what he said on my old show, The Pulse, three and a half years ago. In terms of planet Earth, this is kind of a little hiccup, right? We'll burn the fossil fuel, it'll become carbon dioxide, it'll become... Uh, become plants again, and then uh, it'll be pretty much back to normal. So the idea of destroying the um, biosphere or saying that the uh, the survival of the planet is in question is, to me, sounds really uh, foolish and, uh, and alarmist. So that's two examples of Michael Van Holst ignoring evidence that is widely supported and widely available. What will be the exact effects of climate change? We can debate that, about what's going to happen, about the best ways to uh, combat that. I've seen lots of stories from scientists and their predictions. Some are quite dire. Could be true, maybe not. It's sometimes hard to forecast that. But you cannot credibly say at this point that we are not seeing global warming and that there is not man-made global warming, or climate change, however you want to call it. Michael Van Holst just won an election in Ward 1, won it by a pretty wide margin. He's been active in his ward. Clearly, his constituents were happy with the job he's done. However, days like Tuesday should not be happening again. You're entitled to your own opinion, but you are not entitled to your own facts. We need to pause. When we return, we'll have more of London Live. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on Global News Radio 980 CFPL. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs. Uh, Do you pay for daycare? Are you about to? Did you just stop? It's interesting listening to people talk about daycare because everyone has different thoughts. People who didn't have all-day kindergarten back in the day may think it's not needed now, but was daycare as expensive then as it is now? Well, new survey says daycare fees have dropped or barely inched up 
in some Canadian cities in what may be the early signs of the influence of federal child care money. The fifth annual survey of child care fees from the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives was released today. It says that fees for full-time regulated child care spaces have risen faster than inflation in 61% of the cities reviewed. In London, fees increased at roughly the rate of inflation, while in seven other cities, fees were static compared to last year. The federal treasury is set to spend $7.5 billion over a decade to help fund childcare spaces across the country, with the money flowing through one-on-one agreements with provinces. To talk about this, we're joined by David McDonald. He's a senior economist at the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives. Thanks for your time today. Oh, thanks for having me. Uh, daycare fees uh, for a while now be going up and up and up. Uh, this uh, survey shows that they're dropping in some cases, maybe flat, and it's, it varies from across the country. But were you surprised by some of uh, the data showing they're going down a little bit? Yeah, it's definitely surprising. But this is actually due to some provincial efforts. So uh, the biggest drop we actually found was in St. John's. Uh, and there, St. John's is moving down the path towards a system similar to that in Quebec, where the province sets the fees and then uh, makes a difference up to providers. In Quebec, they pay uh, 8 to $20 a day for child care, depending on the income. And St. John's is moving towards a $35 a day system. They're not quite there, but as a result of them moving down that path, uh, they saw their fees go down by 13%. Somewhat similar situation in uh, Edmonton, where we saw fees drop as well. Uh, there, they're experimenting with a $25 a day childcare in some places. And so it is very interesting, instead of seeing fees always go up, to see them actually go down in some places. Uh, for London, it's a little bit different. Uh, maybe not a huge increase, but uh, fees did increase at roughly the rate of inflation. That's right. Uh, so this last year uh, saw just over a 3% increase in London, which is, as you say, uh, close to the rate of inflation. Now, we've been doing this survey over the past five years, and over that period, fees have increased at about twice the rate of inflation. So particularly in the first couple of years, there were some big increases in London, although uh, a little bit more manageable uh, in the past year. The uh, federal government recently uh, had uh, an announcement that they were going to spend uh, almost $8 billion over the next decade to uh, help with child care across the country. The money is given to the provinces, and the provinces can then do what they want with the money. Is the federal money one of the reasons why we're seeing some decreases here? Yes. Uh, so the federal government is piggybacking on provincial efforts that pre-existed that money. Um, but certainly the influx of that money will mean that programs that were already planned will expand potentially more rapidly or expand to more sites. Uh, and so particularly British Columbia, Alberta, and uh, Newfoundland and Labrador have chosen to use that money to reduce fees or to cap fees in some way. And so in two of the three provinces, we're already seeing the impact uh, and we'll likely see the impact in British Columbia in next year, well, this year's survey, the 2019 survey that we're going to start up in a couple of months. Is there a, is there a proven way that's best for daycare or childcare costs? Because a lot of the provinces are doing something different. Some, as you mentioned, have been setting uh, fees or reducing fees. Is uh, Those seem to be the provinces with the lowest uh, amount uh, for daycare. Is, is, is there a way to say one's better than the other, or does it, is it kind of uh, a gray area? Well, certainly that's where we find the cheapest fees in the country is where provinces set the fees, uh, the cheapest being in, in Quebec um, at about 8 to $20 a day, depending on income. Uh, the other two provinces that have set fees, Prince Edward Island and Manitoba, always rank 
So their, their cities rank second and third after the Quebec cities in terms of the cheapest. Uh, and now we're likely going to see St. John's join that club, become the fourth province to have set fees. Um, what's interesting in British Columbia is that they have a part of, they have a small part of the, the system, about 4% of spaces that's now $10 a day, so very similar to the level you'd see in Quebec. But at the same time, they're also running a program where they reduce fees by $100 a month for preschoolers, um, but that's a reduction on the fees as they already existed. And so it will be interesting to see in B.C. how effective that program is, because they're not setting the fees per se in the reduction. They're just reducing it by a set amount. I guess I should, you know, say, while, you know, we have seen in some cities it's gone down, child care is still really, really expensive in this country. Oh, yeah. Take a look at London, for instance. Uh, a preschooler, which is the most common category for kids uh, just before they go to school, uh, over $1,000 a month. And that's only for one child. Once you've got two children, now you're talking $2,000 a month. And that's very similar to what a lot of families would pay in uh, in rent or in a mortgage. If you've got younger kids, it's uh, just over $1,100 a month for a toddler or over $1,200 a month in London for an infant. And so if you've got two kids that aren't that aren't both preschoolers and, you know, and parents work, uh, this is a very expensive proposition to put your kids in daycare. And so a lot of parents will try to avoid these types of full-time daycare fees by working split shifts, uh, using uh, relatives, grandparents, um, or working part-time because they just can't afford the full-time fees. Even, and maybe I read the, the chart wrong, but I think I got it right. Even if you were to have the kids at home, it's obviously cheaper than going to daycare, but it's for London, it's a little under $1,000, but it's still pretty expensive uh, for childcare, even if you have the kids at home with you. Yeah, so there's there's two types of home care. There's a center-based home care, and then there's family or home-based home care where uh, you, you're sending your kids to, to somebody else's house to care for them. And so we've included both in the medians. Particularly for younger kids, infants in particular, um, the fees can be lower in, in family child care where they're being taken care of in someone's home. Um, it, it's also because centers don't, they just don't have a lot of infant spaces. And so uh, as a result, if you've got younger kids, they're more likely to be in family care, which can tend to be cheaper. And so in some cities where you get a lot of home care, uh, Ottawa being an example of that, um, that can be an important part of reducing fees to some degree, particularly for the younger kids. It's interesting because we've had the the provincial government in Ontario recently announced that they are reviewing a full day kindergarten, and uh, I, it's interesting just to hear the uh, different types of parents from different eras speak up about you know uh, childcare, full day kindergarten versus half day kindergarten, and whatnot. And I just wonder, just jumping off of that, this, this survey has been you've been doing it for five years, but do we know? If daycare is more expensive today than it was, say, 10 or 20 years ago, in terms of like a percentage-wise, in terms of what people would be, would be spending? I don't know that. Uh, so I can certainly tell you uh, what the situation was five years ago, but 10 or 20 years ago, again, we, we weren't doing the survey. Um, certainly one of the interesting pieces in Ontario is that the full-day JK, um, those kids in other provinces would be in full-time child care, and the parents would be paying for it. Uh, and so full-day JK is free. And so that, particularly for those kids in that age range, it's significantly cheaper than it would be if they were in another province. And so that's actually another form of, of reducing the fees. We, we often talk about, you know, set fees in Quebec. But one of the ways is to extend the, the school system further down the age range. And if you were to eliminate that, eliminate full-day JK, well, all those kids would be pushed back into paying childcare. 
And so it would be a, a substantial additional expense for those parents, even if it was part time. I mean, that's that's a big new new expense for parents that wouldn't that they wouldn't have paid if there was full day JK. Is there a conclusion that you can draw from the survey? Well, what's interesting this year is, is as we talked about earlier, that that uh, the provinces and the federal government can have an impact on these fees by setting policies that uh, that cap those fees and make up the difference to providers. And in Canada, that seems to be the most effective way of reducing fees for, for parents. If you have a system where it's purely market-based, you end up with high fees and you end up with uh, big increases in those fees over time. And so what's really interesting this year will be to see how these provincial efforts pan out over the next couple of years, particularly in, in Alberta and B.C., where they're really dipping their toe into setting those fees, but they haven't committed in the same way that... Uh, that St. John, uh, that, that Newfoundland has. It's quite interesting, David. I certainly appreciate your time today. Thank you very much. Yeah, thanks for having me. That's David McDonald, Senior Economist at the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives. We need to pause. When we return, we'll have more of London Live. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on 980 CFPL. You are listening to London Live. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs. Are you an organ donor? Ontarians are donating tissue in record numbers. Organ donation, however, is down slightly. According to the Trillium Gift of Life Network, more people than ever donated tissue in 2018. The Ontario government's Organ and Tissue Donation and Transplant Agency reports there were 2,413 tissue donors last year compared with 2,141 the year before. The number of overall organ donors decreased slightly from... Uh, 1,286 in 2017 down to 1,236, so a decrease of 50. Other findings in the report that just came out is there were 252,000 new registered organ and tissue donors in 2018, and there are over 1,600 people on the transplant wait list as of December 31st, 2018. The agency credits the rise in tissue donation to the expansion of routine notifications to more hospitals, requiring the hospitals notify the Trillium Gift of Life Network when a patient has died. To talk about this, we are joined by Ronnie Gafsey from the Trillium Gift of Life Network. Thanks for your time today. I'm happy to be with you, Devin. The results for 2018 look uh, pretty good. Uh, Ontarians are donating donating, uh, tissue in record numbers, uh, down a little bit for donations, uh, why do you think the uh, disparity between uh, the, 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 those two? You know, we've seen uh, tissue donations going up regularly over the last few years as we put uh, more and more emphasis publicly on the opportunity to enhance uh, 75 lives through one tissue donor, and um, many, many more people are consenting to tissue donation. In terms of organ donation, only a very small percentage of deaths in the hospital even offer the opportunity uh, for organ donation. A person has to pass on a ventilator and be medically suitable. And uh, so we've seen the numbers of, of organ donors sustained but not grow dramatically. Tissue, on the other hand, um, I, I think people are becoming more and more aware that they could enhance lives dramatically and are consenting to tissue donation. It feel, it's not new per se, but it feels like it's it's newer, maybe entering the consciousness for more people. So that maybe explains 
why it's maybe having those bigger increases, organ donations. We can still obviously always do better, but it's uh, maybe a bit more um, top of mind for people who do want to be a donor. Exactly. And public education remains the key success factor uh, to uh, consent to whether it's organ or tissue donation. And uh, we find that if there is a period without education, without any profiling, we'll see the numbers go down. And when there's um, attention put on the subject, it goes up. So we have to work very hard to sustain education uh, through the media and and through many public community events. This may sound like a simple question, but for people who may be a little bit unsure, what's the difference between a tissue donation and an organ donation? Tissue refers to eyes, skin, bone, heart valves, whereas organs which are uh, the, the transplant, which is much more time-sensitive, refers to heart, lungs, pancreas, kidney, liver. So organs are life-saving. The, re- the recipient will not survive without that organ transplant. In the case of tissue... The individual might survive, but their lives will will be dramatically enhanced with the gift of tissue, which gives them sight, which heals burn victims, which uh, addresses congenital heart disease for children, uh, will make help people be mobile, help veterans, for example. So tissue transplant enhances life and organ transplant saves lives. You, you mentioned this earlier, and I think it's an incredible uh, uh, stat and uh, really shows the impact one person can have. One tissue donor can help up to 75 people. That's right. That is exactly right. And, and I have a tremendous impact. When you meet someone who uh, was blind and now has sight, it's hard to call that life-enhancing. To me, that's life-saving. The dramatic change in uh, the way their life can be lived is, is really uh, something that talks to people's emotions and causes them to register consent. In terms of how we're doing in London or southwestern Ontario, how are we doing for donations? Well, I will tell you that, um, first of all, in terms of registration rate. London's registration rate is 43%. So 43% of the eligible population in London have registered consent. That compares to 33% as a provincial average. So London is doing very, very well. Do you have an idea? Having said, okay, sorry. May I add one more thing? Having said oh, absolutely, that, yeah. I want, uh, it's important that you know that today, there are 39 Londoners on the wait list for a life-saving organ transplant. Well, there was a couple things I wanted to get to. I guess one, uh, in terms of maybe London being a bit better for other parts of the province, do you have an idea for why that might be? Is it because we're a bit more of a medical centre with some of the hospitals here, or could it be a different reason? Well, certainly London is well-known for its transplant program medical acumen in this area. Uh, 
internationally known, and that makes a difference. I think Londoners are are very proud of the achievements in transplant, and that would cause them to be engaged and to register. I also think it's a reflection of the culture of the community in London. Uh, it's a, a close and a generous community. People tend to know each other, and that shows in the registration rate. You mentioned the number of people who are on the uh, waiting list right now, and while a lot of progress has been made, uh, and this is more provincially, sadly, we st- we do have someone who dies every three days waiting for an organ transplant. So uh, we've we've made good progress, but there's still more work to be done. Absolutely, you know, the 51 people who reside in London had a life-saving transplant in 2018. 51 Londoners were saved. And 43 people have registered consent and and given hope to those on the wait list. But there's still a long way to go. We're still losing people on the wait list because there aren't enough organs. And by registering, you're saying to all that are on the wait list, we would help you if we could. What's proven... What's proven to be successful in getting people to uh, sign up to be a donor uh, if they hadn't been 10 years ago? Because be, there's been quite the increase over the past uh, decade. There are a number of, um, I would say, motivators that cause people to register. Certainly when they know friends, neighbors, colleagues who've been impacted either through being uh, recipients of organs or tissue or part of a donor family, that causes people to take action. And then high-profile media um, uh, highlights, such as, sadly, the Humboldt tragedy uh, last April, caused there to be a huge increase in uh, registrations. But we can't, we can't let... Uh, uh, tragedies drive us. What we have to do is take responsibility for educating everyone we know. So we ask everyone who is listening to please register consent and take responsibility for spreading the word. And that is how we will increase registration. And that is how it has increased so dramatically over the last few years. Ronnie, I uh, certainly appreciate your time today. Thank you very much. We thank you, Devin. That's Ronnie Gavsey from the Trillium Gift of Life Network. We need to pause. When we return, we'll have more of London Live. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on 980 CFPL. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on London Live. Mike will be back with you tomorrow. I want to talk about uh, type 2 diabetes. I want to talk about your heart health because a London doctor is sounding the alarm on a silent epidemic that's killing millions of people. New research has shown there's a link between heart disease and type 2 diabetes. Considering up to 80% of the 3.5 million Canadians living with diabetes will die from a heart attack or stroke. This is quite important. Dr. Robert McKelvey is a cardiologist at St. Joseph's Hospital and a professor of medicine at Western University. He joins us now. Thanks for your time today. Yeah, well, my pleasure. I'm happy to uh, be involved with this. I was intrigued uh, by this when I saw it. Uh, Just 
from the, the basic level of this survey that was done, the Maya Heart Matter Survey, a lot of Canadians not making the connection between type 2 diabetes and heart disease. Are you surprised by that, or do you as a doctor maybe kind of see that maybe not as surprising? Well, I I do find it uh, a bit surprising, uh, but you have to remember that when the diagnosis of diabetes is made, uh, oftentimes it's a number of years after that the individual develops their heart disease. So you can imagine then being an individual that it, it doesn't look to them like cause and effect in the sense of, oh, you get diabetes and all of a sudden you get heart disease. But there's no doubt that uh, diabetes is a direct risk factor for the development of uh, cardiovascular disease, heart and stroke. And uh, it's also important to realize that, you know, a good 80% of Canadians with diabetes will <clears throat> die from their, their heart disease or stroke um, because they have diabetes. And, and individuals with diabetes have a reduced life expectancy because of, of, uh, of um, cardiovascular disease caused by the diabetes. And the other important thing to remember is that, uh, you know, we've, we've just chatted for a moment about it causing cardiovascular disease, and we think about it causing coronary artery disease. Diabetes on its own can cause um, a weakening of the heart unrelated to uh, the development of coronary artery disease. So, you know, overall, it's it's not a good thing to get diabetes, and certainly it's important to aggressively treat the diabetes and keep in mind that, that heart and stroke um, disease can follow from the diabetes. So that's kind of a long-winded explanation, but you're right. It, it's important to note, and I'm surprised that, uh, that uh, they don't... Uh, they don't make the connection. How long have we known about that link? I don't have diabetes, so it's not something that would be top of mind for me, but um, maybe if, if I were to be diagnosed, it'd be something that I would come across, or how long has that link, uh, have, we, have we known about that? Right. So your, your question is, how long have we been aware of the link between diabetes and the development of, of cardiovascular disease? Is yes. That, that's, I think, your question, yeah. We've, we've known about it a long time. I've been, I've been practicing medicine a long time, uh, over 30 years, and um, it's been a well-established um, uh, piece of information. It may be that the, uh, the, the publicizing of it has been um, uh, less good in the sense of, doctors saying, you have diabetes, we need to be mindful that you could get um, cardiac disease. And oftentimes what we do is when we see a patient with cardiac disease, we ask them, you know, did you smoke? Do you have high blood pressure? Do you have diabetes? So it's kind of a retrospective thing rather than looking at it prospectively. But we need to look at it prospectively. Well, on that vein, uh, for people who do have diabetes, what can they do um, to uh, better themselves uh, for the potential for heart disease? Right. Excellent question. And what needs to be done, as I said at the outset, 
the diabetes needs to be uh, treated aggressively. And what do I mean by that? Well, they need to follow uh, diets that are are prescribed or or, or uh, advised for them. Uh, regular exercise is very important because. Uh, Type 2 diabetes, which is what we're talking about here right now, uh, is made worse when you're overweight and when you're physically um, uh, unfit or you, you participate in very little exercise. Um, there are uh, drugs available today. <clears throat> uh, one of them more recently, ampagliflozin, has been shown to uh, potentially reduce uh, the cardiovascular risk. So when the drug lowers the blood sugar, it um, is also uh, has been found to reduce risk from from cardiovascular disease. So there are treatments available. Um, certainly, in combination, we want to make sure that things like hypertension are well controlled in a patient with diabetes. So the general recommendation is if if a person's blood pressure is greater than 130 over 80 and they have diabetes, then there should be uh, measures taken to further reduce that. And the drugs normally used are things like angiotensin-converting enzyme inhibitors or angiotensin receptor blockers that uh, are useful in patients with diabetes. So there are a number of things that can be done and should be done. And finally, part and parcel of all this is that the blood sugar should be monitored. And there's a measure called a hemoglobin A1C that very nicely lets us know how the blood sugars have been looking over the last few months. So a person may come in and their blood sugar is a little elevated with a spot check, just looking at the fasting blood sugar. Uh, or conversely, it, it may be... Um, you know, running at six and a half, and then you do the hemoglobin A1C, and you see in reality the blood sugars have been running higher than that uh, for a long period of time. So I think it's one, monitoring, two, using diet and exercise, three, using some of the drugs I said to control uh, high blood pressure, and for some of the newer agents, such as ampagliflozin, which uh, lowers blood sugar and as well has a, a, a direct effect on uh, cardiovascular events. Based on Canadians' diet in general, mm -hmm. uh, it's not the greatest. Um, are you worried at all that we're going down this dangerous path with people not eating well? Could lead to uh, type 2 diabetes. That could open the door uh, for, uh, for heart disease? Yeah, absolutely. And again, that's an excellent question because uh, as the population uh, gets heavier, and in fact, we know the population, the Canadian population by and large, is not particularly active and is overweight. So because of this, the, the incidence of type 2 diabetes will be on the rise. And uh, so, yes, uh, the, the short answer to your question is yes. We should be very concerned about it. I certainly appreciate your time today. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you very much. I'm glad I could uh, uh, talk with you. That's Dr. Robert McKelvey, a cardiologist at St. Joseph Hospital and a professor of medicine at Western University. We need to pause. When we return, we'll have more of London Live. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on 980 CFPL.
In the second hour of the program, we'll talk about vaping, smoking, uh, childhood development with uh, screen time, and a whole lot more. That's coming up in the second hour of London Live. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on 980 CFPL. I'm Jacqueline LaBelle in downtown London. Misty skies, zero degrees, feels like minus six with the wind chill. The conditions out on area roads were much better today than yesterday, but things still aren't perfect. Environment Canada still has us under a freezing drizzle advisory. Officials say we're also in for strong winds tonight, gusting between 60 and 80 kilometers an hour. That could last into tomorrow. Anyone heading out on the roads should plan extra time and slow down. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau says allegations that his office pressured former Attorney General Jody Wilson-Raybould to help SNC-Lavalin avoid a criminal prosecution are false. The Quebec engineering and construction giant allegedly paid millions of dollars in bribes to get government business in Libya. Wilson-Raybould could have directed federal prosecutors to negotiate a remediation agreement, which would allow SNC to say it was not at fault for things certain employees did. But the Globe and Mail reports she refused in the face of repeated lobbying by Trudeau's aides. It was a full house at the London Convention Centre this morning where hundreds of community leaders gathered for an annual breakfast in support of young people. The event put on by Youth Opportunities Unlimited is raising money for a large affordable housing project downtown. Three properties at the corner of Richmond and York Streets are being turned into affordable housing units and a wellness hub. The space is geared towards young people, like the five who shared personal stories during this morning's event. Lucas Frampton says he was struggling with addiction and relationships when he was first connected to YOU. I don't know exactly what's next for me, but I want to keep this trajectory going. I want my future to be tremendous and to continue to push myself out of my comfort zone, like today for example. I've been, I've been thinking more about post-secondary. I've felt torn between going into the fashion or makeup program and lately I've been curious about social services. Frampton says he wants to use the voice that YOU has helped him find. YOU helps vulnerable people, young people in a variety of ways ranging from education and employment to health care. The Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives' fifth annual survey of childcare fees finds the cost of full-time regulated childcare spaces has risen faster than inflation in 61% of cities it reviewed. The centre found the costs were highest in the GTA and lowest in Quebec, Manitoba and PEI, the three provinces that have had fixed fees for years. Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives senior economist Dave McDonald tells 980 CFPL costs have been climbing in London. This last year uh, saw just over a 3% increase in London, which is close to the rate of inflation. Now, we've been doing this survey over the past five years, and over that period, fees have increased at about twice the rate of inflation. So particularly in the first couple of years, there were some big increases in London, although uh, a little bit more manageable uh, in the past year. The Centre's economists believe federal government policies aimed at lowering fees will lead to an overall decrease in prices for the first time in five years. London's Ice Dancing Darlings are coming to town for the annual Sports Celebrity Dinner and Auction. The event's chair, Ryan Robinson, made the announcement on the Craig Needle Show this morning that Scott Moyer and Tessa Virtue will be honoured at the event. He tells 980 CFPL the pair will be London's Sports People of the Year. They've been to the event before, uh, you know, as, as attendees on the head table, but we said we really wanted to, uh, you know, additionally recognize them for everything, not only they've done over the years for, for Thames Valley Children's Centre, uh, but uh, in the London sports community. Uh, they obviously had the event in Ilderton. The pair were recognized on Canada's Walk of Fame in December and were inducted in London's Sports Hall of Fame back in 2010 after winning gold in the 2010 Vancouver Winter Olympics. The 63rd edition of the annual event is set for April 1st at the London Convention Centre. You're listening to 980 CFPL.
Welcome back to the program. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs. I want to talk about smoking for the next little while in a couple different ways. One initiative comes out of Canada, the other out of the United States. In Hawaii, a lawmaker is trying to get smoking banned statewide. Step one would make it illegal to buy tobacco until the age of 30, and then they'd go up from there. So once you get to the age of 40, then 50, then 60, then 70, then 80, and eventually they would ban it under the age of 100. In this country, Health Canada is proposing new restrictions on advertising vaping products and e-cigarettes to minors, citing concerns about the product's rising popularity among teens. The proposed regulations, which have yet to be finalized, restrict advertising where youth might see it. To talk about this, we're joined by Rob Cunningham from the Canadian Cancer Society. Thanks for your time today. Thanks very much, Devin. Good to be with you again. Well, let's start by talking about these uh, proposed uh, vaping regulations from Health Canada. It looks like uh, for advertising, it would essentially be treated pretty similar to tobacco. Um, There are some significant new restrictions on where vaping ads are going to be allowed, Um, uh, not on billboards in certain places where uh, young people uh, can be, like shopping malls or transit buses, ban on social media platforms, um, some very significant restrictions. They don't go as far as tobacco. We certainly would like them to, or as far as cannabis or medical cannabis, they don't go that far. For example, for for television and radio, it's uh, proposed that they would be um, 30 minutes, uh, any youth-oriented program during it or 30 minutes before or after. But what's a youth-oriented program? Does that include the Grey Cup, the Super Bowl? Uh, NHL hockey, or all, I mean, it's not just Saturday morning cartoons that teenagers watch. So our recommendation there would be to strengthen it, uh, to ban all TV and radio advertising, um, which is something the tobacco industry did voluntarily in 1972. We certainly should not be having e-cigarette advertising on TV. Um, so uh, so uh, some significant measures that we strongly support. We urge that they be adopted as quickly as possible um, and, uh, and that they be strengthened. Why do you think uh, they didn't go as far as tobacco on the, the TV and, and radio front? Well, I think they may by the time that the end of consultations are done, and we certainly hope so. That's our recommendation. But I think that what's underlying the concern has been the rapid increase in youth vaping. Very significant, dramatic. Uh, we're hearing from high school principals across the country of how there's been the last fall, the sudden surge in vaping. Uh, kids are using these products in bathrooms. They're having to take doors off bathrooms or have extra approaches or maybe l- limit the number of bathrooms that can be used at certain times of the day. And the statistics really bear that out. Uh, one study uh, finding that there is an increase uh, from 9% to 15% of grade 10 to 12 students. That's back to 2017 uh, school year, 2016-17 school year. But then what's really happened is that in 2018, uh, when the advertising started to happen by Imperial Tobacco, uh, which market started to market Vipe as a product, uh, by Juul, which entered the Canadian market, um, there was advertising on TV. There still is advertising on TV. And, and you know, Juul has a much higher level of nicotine content. Um, in the United States, the U.S. Surgeon General has described youth vaping as an epidemic. The FDA is moving for action. So I think it's in that context that uh, Health Canada has decided to move, and we certainly very much support Health Canada doing so. Why is it so popular? Well, I think there's a number of factors. I think um, uh, it, the devices now look like a 
sort of a USB stick, a flash drive, so they're able to be concealed uh, from parents and teachers. They, you know, people, they were not, not even recognize it as a product. I think the, the high levels of nicotine, um, you know, uh, make it harder to stop. And, you know, because of dependence, uh, addiction, uh, kids are wanting to continue to use this. Certainly the marketing has made this seem to be, you know, popular and attractive. Uh, flavors, many flavors that are attractive to youth. And so, uh, you know, Health Minister uh, Jeanette Petipa-Taylor bringing forward these uh, restrictions uh, um, is, is really important, and we're hoping they can be adopted as soon as possible and in strengthened form. I, I just view it as a different form of smoking, but really essentially the same. But do, do, you, do you think people view it differently than smoking? Well, uh, in a way, they are different products um, because you don't have the same smoke. You don't have smoke. Uh, you, have, you have nicotine. Uh, you have vapor. You know, the vapor contains you know, some substances other than, than water. Um, and, but, you know, e-cigarettes are intended to be used by adults unable to quit smoking. And that's why they're available. But they should not be used by youth and, you know, by smokers who have quit altogether and, or, you know, or other, other non-smokers. And we've made such progress in reducing smoking among, uh, among youth uh, that in, we just can't uh, undermine uh, our tobacco control gains by having this new generation start to nicotine. And, you know, there's, um, you know, and our concern, of course, is that they get hooked on nicotine and they can also move to cigarettes. And, uh, you know, the trends in 2018 um, are not good. I was intrigued by some proposed legislation out of Hawaii that would eventually ban everyone under the age of 100 from buying cigarettes. They would start at the age of 30, then they'd jump up 10 years and jump up 10 years and jump up 10 years until 2024 when they would get to the age of 100. What do you think of this legislation? Well, there have been uh, variations of this that have been discussed and proposed elsewhere. Um, There was a bill in the state of Tasmania in Australia that was introduced that would say that uh, anyone born, uh, you know, within a couple of years will no longer be able to smoke. Um, You know, and so it it would gradually increase the age one year at a time, um, so you know, go from 21 to 22 to 23 to 24, and so it's a longer process. Now, Hawaii's timetable is much more aggressive, um, and so they would start at 20. Right now, the age in Hawaii is 21, and we certainly support that, you know, for here in Ontario. Uh, but then uh, they would go to age 30 um, by 2020, and then by 2024, they would get all the way up to 100. So it's essentially essentially banning cigarettes within six years. So that's a very aggressive timetable. Um, in Ontario, we could not ban cigarettes uh, because of contraband, and we'd have that overnight. Now, Hawaii is somewhat geographically isolated as an island and so on. They would still allow people to bring in cigarettes. Um, they wouldn't apply it, you know, to certain to cigars or to e-cigarettes. Uh, so I think um, it's not something that we've recommended here in uh, Canada. I think as a first step, we we need to get to age 21. And if we can't get to age 21, we certainly can't get to age 25 or 30 or even higher. And there is momentum um, internationally and, you know, nearby in the United States for age 21. And that's a, it's a great next step. We have six states that have done it, uh, Hawaii, California, Oregon, uh, Massachusetts, Maine, and New Jersey. There's a bill in New York State nearby that has the support of the governor, 
that uh, that may well pass. And there's other states that are advancing bills, including Illinois and Virginia and others. Um, uh, so there has been more discussion internationally um, about this type of approach uh, that's been the bill in Hawaii, not that aggressively in terms of a timetable, but so far no country in the world has done something along those lines. We aren't all a you know an island in the Pacific, as you mentioned with Hawaii. They're kind of a unique uh, position geographically. Is it possible to do something like ban cigarettes, or as you mentioned, just because of contraband, is that just not possible and could even lead to uh, some sort of prohibition-type era for smoking? Well, we know that for alcohol, prohibition didn't work. And uh, you know, for cigarettes, you know, if we were to ban them, we would have contraband overnight. And in Ontario, uh, which actually has the worst contraband situation of any province in Canada because of illegal manufacturers on reserves, um, you know, it's simply not viable. We certainly support the objective of a tobacco-free society. Smoking is going down. Uh, at some future point, a ban you know, will be feasible when it gets low enough, for example. But um, given our uh, uh, geography and so on and the, the illegal factors and reserves and addiction, um, it's simply not viable in the short term. For Hawaii, I, I, I think it's interesting. I wonder, like, why not just ban it outright or say in 20, as of 2024, uh, this will no longer be allowed? Or is the incremental approach, if, if, if they do go this route, uh, the better approach in terms of just slowly working towards something rather than just essentially ripping off the Band-Aid? Well, I mean, the bill's been introduced. You know, it doesn't mean it's going to pass. And, and I think that, um, you know, uh, whether it's, you know, one year or six years, I mean, six years in the big scheme of things is not that long a uh, time. But, you know, there could be, a, you know, a situation. I mean, their proposal by 2020, you know, is for the age to be um, 30 and then to move it up, you know, by big chunks. And uh, so, I mean, I think, um, you know, it's very good for us to be discussing this. And we have made such progress that people are visioning that we want to go much lower in our smoking problems and that we can achieve it. And, um, and you know, what, what can we do? And we need to be having these discussions. Um, so I think, you know, certainly, um, you know, having a, an effective ban, uh, you know, in 100, you know, in six years, you know, anyone on the age of 100, um, uh, you know, is, is slower than, than the media. But the other thing is, is that people will be able to, according to the current wording of the bill, still be able to bring in their own cigarettes into the state. Uh, so you can imagine that there'll be all kinds of people bringing it in to give to friends and family. Yeah. Also. It's interesting, Rob. I, I certainly appreciate your time today. Thank you very much. Devin, my pleasure. That is uh, Rob Cunningham from the uh, Canadian Cancer Society. Certainly uh, interesting out of Hawaii. I, I don't know if that's going to pass. I'd be surprised if it goes forward, but... Uh, I'd be intrigued to see how it goes if they do pass it. And with the vaping, I mean, I know it's different uh, than smoking, but to me, essentially, it's the same type of thing. It's, you know, it's, it's like radio right now. If you listen to radio online versus through a radio itself, or if in the future all of radio is online, it's still radio to me. But it's different, but the same. We need to pause. When we come back, we'll have more of London Live. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on 980 CFPL. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs. New study out from the University of Calgary has shown that uh, too much screen time can negatively impact a young child's development. 
The study was published Monday in the journal JAMA Pediatrics. It followed a group of 2,441 kids between 2011 and 2016, measuring their screen time as well as their progress in meeting various developmental milestones. The researchers found that the higher levels of screen time at two and three years old was associated with poor performance on a developmental screening test by age five. This means that children were not meeting benchmarks in communication, social skills, problem-solving, and motor skills. This according to Sherry Madigan, who's the lead researcher on the study and an assistant professor in psychology at the University of Calgary. Sherry Madigan joins us now to talk about this. Thanks for your time today. Ah, my pleasure. Well, I've, I've heard concerns about screen time for kids before the age of two. This looked at kids slightly older than that, but were you uh, surprised by some of the results of this? Um, I was a little bit surprised about the number of hours that kids are spending in front of the television. So the pediatric guidelines are actually that children aged two to five spend no more than one hour per day watching what they call high-quality program, things like Sesame Street. Um, and the average number of hours in our sample for kids watching TV between those age ranges was, um, was between two and three. And in fact, at age three, some kids are watching three and a half hours per day. And screen time, is it, is it TV via, you know, any form of, you know, on a computer or maybe a laptop or, uh, you know, an, an iPad or something like that as well? That, that all falls under screen time? Yeah, well, it's actually quite interesting because we started this study in 20, 2011 and um, collected data up to 2016, which naturally happens when you uh, st- watch study children over time, especially 2,500 children, um, which was how many families we saw in our study. And so our questions had to evolve over time because the digital technology was evolving so rapidly. So in 2010, we asked a bit more about television um, and uh, gaming consoles. And then over time, we asked more about not just television, but um, tablets and devices, um, things like how often they're, you know, all, all TVs come equipped with Netflix now too. So um, we, we asked more about more modern technologies as the study evolved. That is interesting. Do, do parents have different definitions of what screen time might be for them? Um, that's a good question. I don't know if we can answer that from our data, but I think that um, one thing that we didn't ask about was necessarily devices like a parent's cell phone device, and those have also, also evolved so rapidly. But um, devices can actually be quite hard to measure in terms of time. So parents might be at the grocery store and they pass off their device, um, but that might be five minutes. So oftentimes we really try to restrict the questioning to things like um, TV viewing, um, gaming consoles, things where we know they're at home um, and, uh, and kids are using them more regularly and for longer durations of time. What made you want to look into this? Well, we know that parents are quite concerned about screen time. So we hear a lot about screen time and parents have questions about, you know, is it good for their kids? Is it bad for their kids? There's a lot of advertising to tell parents that, you know, if you put your child in front of a screen, um, this type of programming, um, it can help uh, increase their 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 development, for example. So some really good marketing campaigns. But there's actually not a lot of evidence for that when you look at the data. Um, there's some... Restricted evidence that suggests that kids who are watching high-quality program like Sesame Street um, in particular, are it is helping them with their language. But on the whole, long duration of screen time is really more detrimental than it is beneficial to children. Just to get into that, what is it about the screen time that can have that negative impact? 
Well, it's a really good question. I think what what um, two things. I think that the digital interface can be a can be overstimulating for the for kids. So. Uh, devices are now genetic, are not genetically, digitally engineered to really draw our in our attention. So a lot of people have probably experienced uh, going to bed tired, but watching a little bit of Netflix, and then all of a sudden they're three or four episodes in, wondering what happened to being tired. Um, you know, we're we're drawn in from the digital interface and the, um, you know, and and. Uh, sort of the nature of the technology. Um, so that's one thing that maybe there's a process of overstimulation for young children when their brains are developing so rapidly in that early childhood period. The other one um, is really that when kids are in front of screens, especially for a long period of time, they're not, they're not practicing development. They're not out and about running, walking, walking upstairs, um, riding a bike. They're not practicing their language by interacting with siblings, caregivers, grandparents, parents. So it's really a series of missed opportunities. So when we're in front of screens, we're not, kids aren't gaining those, you know, really important developmental um, uh, opportunities to practice learning and development. I can see how it would be problematic. I mean, there could be issues for adults, so certainly when your brain's still developing and you're a kid, it would certainly be present there as well. Yeah, I think, you know, uh, the research suggests that brains are still developing to maturity until children, or until adolescents are in their mid, or sorry, adults are in their mid-20s. So I think that, um, you know, I, I do think screens can be used for good. Uh, I don't know about you, but, like, we do a, a family night movie night together. We really enjoy it. Um, you know, there are lots of – there are ways that devices can be quite handy, um, but I do think that we just have to be really conscious about the amount of time we're in front of screens because just, like – you know, if we eat too much junk food, we don't feel well. Screens are sort of the same thing. If we just are in front of them too much, um, we don't, you know, it's problematic. Yeah. So I think, I think we need to think about it that way. And that, that, that's for children, that's for adolescents, and that's for adults alike. And as adults, we have this additional role, especially if we're parents, to be good media mentors to our kids. So that means modeling healthy device habits you know, how we use our devices, where we use our devices in the home, and how often we're on them. So I think we sort of have this added responsibility as adult parents to to really mentor our children to not be on the screen all the time. And we do that by, by you know, not being on them ourselves. Well, it's a good point. And I can certainly, when you look at kids' programming, I mean, sometimes you look at it, it looks like whoever created it was like, smoke, must have been smoking pot when they came up with the idea. It just looks completely insane. But there's a certain science towards some of this, and it can help kids in terms of a lot of different ways, in terms of learning and other forms of development. So it's not that it's all bad, but you know, I, I think, as you say, it's kind of like everything in moderation. Yeah, and I think parents just have to have a think on it. You know, I, was, I have young children, and I was, um, you know, we were... We were watching screens, you know. I try to watch it with them together so that I can sort of bridge the learning gap and, and t- talk to them about what's going on and use language to sort of enhance learning. And but there was one program on um, on Netflix that was where you know it was just so rapid. It was it was almost a frantic pace to the children's programming. And so I actually switched it to something else that was less fast paced because I just personally don't think that, I think that's overstimulating for kids. So I think parents can sort of take a moment to think about um, what it is, they're, 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 what kind of screens 
they're using or what, what sort of programming they're using on the screen and to try to emphasize high-quality programming because I think that's much better for kids. You mentioned that the kind of questions you had to ask changed over the course of the study just because the technology changed. It did really accelerate pretty rapidly. Are, are parents maybe a bit more informed in terms of some of the positives and negatives that can come with uh, screen time for kids now, do you think? Well, you know, I think I would have said yes before this study, but then what came out of this study is that the majority of the children in our sample are not meeting the Canadian Pediatric Society's guidelines around screen time of no more than one hour a day. So I, I don't think the messaging is really fully out there that we need to restrict screen time, especially in those really early years. So I think, you know, I think there's more we can do in terms of just alerting parents to to, to screen use and and as much as possible encouraging parents that if they are going to put the screen on to not use it as a babysitter and to try as much as possible to sit down and 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 watch with the kids. You know, there's there's some research to suggest that when you're interacting with kids with the screen, um, that that can actually be, uh, that the effects of that aren't as, as sort of detrimental because you're, you're bridging connection and learning for kids. Um, so if a child is watching a screen on their own and they see an El- Elmo building blocks, they don't then transfer that knowledge to building blocks. If you were to give them a set of blocks, they actually don't. They can't transfer two-dimensional knowledge to three-dimensional knowledge when they're really young. But as a parent, you can provide that bridge and teach them that learning, for example, or you can label what's on the screen for them and augment their language. So I think we have to kind of sit with our kids and and watch the screen together rather than use it as a babysitter all the time. It's a really interesting study. Uh, Sherry, I certainly appreciate your time today. Thank you very much. Yeah, thanks for having me. That's Sherry Madigan from the University of Calgary. She was the lead researcher of a study that found too much screen time can have a negative impact on a young child's development. We need to pause. When we return, we'll have more of London Live. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on 980 CFPL. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs. Mike will be back with you tomorrow. I want to talk about cybersecurity for the next little bit. Canada's chief electoral officer is pretty confident that Elections Canada has good safeguards to prevent cyber attacks from robbing Canadians of their right to vote in this year's federal election. However, Stefan Perot is also worried that political parties are not as well equipped. Moreover, with thousands of volunteers involved in campaigns, he said it's difficult to ensure no one falls prey to fairly basic cyber tricks like phishing. That could inadvertently give hackers access to party databases. Elections Canada has been training its own staff to resist such dirty tricks and along with Canada's cyber spying agency, the Communication Security Establishment, they will be meeting with party officials again next week to reinforce the need to train their volunteers. David Shipley is a cybersecurity expert and the Director of Strategic Initiatives and Information Technology Services at the University of New Brunswick. Thanks for your time today. It's a pleasure to be here. Were you surprised to see the warning uh, from uh, the chief electoral officer for this country that uh, political parties could be vulnerable to some sort of a cyber attack? Absolutely, 100% not surprised, and the advice is 100% spot on, and it's not could be vulnerable. They are absolutely guaranteed are vulnerable, and they are not investing enough in this area, and they need to get, taking, get take it seriously uh, yesterday. 
When we talk about cyber attacks, I think maybe we need to maybe just define that a little bit because it doesn't mean, you know, some, you know, big master hack. It could be something relatively small like phishing, which could turn into a big amount of information, but it's not some sort of debilitating attack when we think of maybe a cyber attack. Exactly. And in, in social engineering, which is using um, fraud and, and sort of the things we normally would call con artist tactics using email, is the number one way to break in any, any organization, let alone a political party. Um, the number two way, of course, is hacking their websites and inserting uh, vulnerabilities or gathering information from there. And, you know, when it comes to hacking politicians, we've just seen a textbook case in Germany where a 20-year-old hacked hundreds of politicians using email scams and then slowly leaked into details of their lives throughout December is kind of a, a twisted advent calendar um, and, and sort of upending German politics. And our politicians are absolutely vulnerable to the same thing. The most famous case of this uh, in recent memory, anyway, was is John Podesta in the United, United States in 2016 working on Hillary Clinton's campaign. Just based on that, you mentioned Germany, there's lots of cases out there. I'm a bit surprised parties in this country would be so cavalier with this? Well, it just simply is partly, I think, a bit of an age breakdown that some of the most senior members of these parties are, are part of a political system that has not evolved to adjust to the, the threats and realities of the, of the new era we live with. They just haven't been able to keep pace with it. And certainly when they look at IT costs in terms of running a modern political party, it's just another cost center. It's not seen as a risk per se, but they have to adjust their reality to that because the Podesta hack was a game-changing moment in the U.S. presidential election. Thankfully, the Democratic Party in the United States has learned they've appointed a chief information security officer, or what we call a CISO, and they've actually just prevented another attack. And so every major political party at the federal level in Canada needs to have a dedicated chief information security officer in place, I'd say ASAP. It's interesting that I saw the story yesterday because it happened right after I did a little test within our company where they're trying to make sure that our IQ on these matters is up to snuff and there's some different courses they want us all to take so that we know uh, what we need to know in terms of cybersecurity and what's safe, what's not for emails, websites, and and the other. Um, I, I just wonder what the uh, IQ of Canadians in general, just removing the political parties away from this, is because it's it's been front of mind for a while, but I wonder if what Canadians know or what they think is right is actually right when it comes to these matters. Actually, it's really interesting. The Royal Bank of Canada did a survey and they released the results um, late last year. It showed Canadians are a little too overconfident in what they think they know about cybersecurity versus when pressed to actually demonstrate knowledge on those things, gaps in understanding, even common terms like the one you used, phishing, um, a lot of people struggle to, to describe it or understand it. So there's a lot of work to be done in cybersecurity, awareness and education. In fact, that's what our company specializes in. And believe it or not, 75% of Canadian organizations a private and public sector still don't even train their employees and team members about this very important issue. Should we be concerned at all? I mean, we just had uh, the federal government recently pass some new legislation on election laws uh, that had a lot of different aspects to it. One of the aspects not included is privacy protections for political parties. Uh, when you consider all the information parties have on Canadians, uh, maybe it's a bit concerning that that was left out of this reform. Oh, I, I think it's incredibly concerning. It is, I think the chief electoral officer was spot on in the comments that it, it is disappointing 
that this is left out. The, the political parties have engineered themselves highway size exemptions to privacy laws, and this actually hurts them. Because without being subject to those privacy laws, the political parties themselves don't see the importance of protecting this information, aren't subject to sanctions for not protecting it, and thus don't invest in it. And so, you know, this is a, a vicious circle. They absolutely should be accountable to the same standards as private sector companies for that very reason, but also because they're hypocrites. You can't hold private sector companies accountable for the protection of Canadians when you're not even willing to do it as political parties or elected officials. Should we be concerned about election interference? We are in an election year. doesn't necessarily mean the election is going to turn one way, but for a lot of, uh, you know, the foreign actors for this, it's not necessarily uh, a game where they're, they're looking for 2019. It could be, uh, you know, 2023 and, and beyond. Well, see, we, what will happen with election interference, thankfully, in Canada, you know, at least we know the sanctity of the voting system is, is stable and safe. Uh, we don't use electronic voting. We still use paper ballots. We're safe there. The second level risk is attacks against Elections Canada for voters' roles to try and send disinformation about actual voting times. Elections Canada is investing in security, and I feel really good about that. The third way you attack a democratic system is you attack with fake news. And that is very much a huge weakness in the Canadian system right now. And I don't think we've got the right um, structures in place to hold Facebook, Twitter, and others accountable the way that we hold other media outlets accountable for inaccurate information. Government is always slow to respond to technology, but I'm, I'm still a little concerned based on just how prevalent a lot of this has been there's really no reason for us to be slow on some of this stuff. No, I mean, but this is a human pattern when it comes to technology. It took us decades for the common sense laws to actually have seatbelts in cars to be implemented and, and tireless campaigning by folks like Ralph Nader. So it doesn't surprise me. It took the Titanic to have uh, regulations for ocean liners to have enough lifeboats. So things that we think should be obvious and we should move on quickly, we don't. Unfortunately, the consequence for this is at a macro level, it's societal. And, you know, having an election where the government that's voted in is at best seen as um, illegitimate or worse, actually is illegitimate, um, that really strikes to the core of, of Canadians' uh, lives and our, and our future as a society. And we've got to wake up to this. David, I certainly appreciate your time today. Thank you very much. You're always welcome. That's David Shipley, a cybersecurity expert. We need to pause. When we return, we'll have more of London Live. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on Global News Radio 980 CFPL. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on London Live. Mike will be back with you tomorrow. Do you dream of retiring young? You're close to retirement. Maybe you've retired already. I ask because a new poll from CIBC has found that more than a quarter of retired Canadians regret retiring and a most equal number have tried to re-enter the labour market. While 59% chose to return for the intellectual stimulation, 50% said it's for financial concerns that have them going back to work. The poll also revealed that half of Canadians would rather work past the age of 65 than retire and endure a lower standard of living. Most of us believe that reducing our work hours or semi-retirement will give us the best of both worlds. To talk about this, we're joined by Jamie Gollenbuck. He's a Managing Director of Tax and Estate Planning at CIBC. Thanks for your time today. Pleasure. 
I, I thought the the poll and the results were pretty interesting. What made you want to look into this? Well, what we're interested in, in, in trying to understand is if Canadians are prepared for retirement, and when they retire, are they happy, or do they have enough money, and do they need to go back to work? So really, it's all about uh, do Canadians have a plan for retirement, and if they carefully considered all their sources of income, as well as how that income is going to be taxed. Were you uh, surprised by the results? Well, I think the most surprising one was that uh, the number of people that wanted to return uh, to the workplace, um, 59% of them who chose to return uh, did it for the intellectual stimulation, but 50% said it was really money. Uh, They needed the money, and that's why they went back to work. There could be different reasons why people retire or leave the workforce, uh, but you would think, like if I was going to be in that position, I would be planning my financial future for the for the you know next 10 20 30 years beyond but it seems like some people maybe weren't really ready or maybe underestimated what would be required once they did retire well, I think that's right, and I think the big problem is that people sometimes don't have a plan, and sometimes they end work involuntarily. People get laid off, or their job disappears, or there's health issues, and they stop working, uh, but they could still be in their 60s and have another 20 or 30 years with longevity now, and they haven't fully planned for that. So what are they going to do with the time? Is there a sense of purpose? Uh, and then also financially, do they have enough money to travel and do the other things that people want to do in retirement. And that's where I think having a financial plan in advance, speaking to an advisor, uh, really comes into play. What are some of the, the pitfalls people have fallen into maybe when they haven't planned as they probably should have for those who meant to leave the workforce then maybe realize that they need to go back for some of those financial concerns? How does maybe a plan for retirement differ than a plan for when you're younger for your adulthood and maybe planning to, uh, for kids to go to post-secondary and beyond? How, how does those plans differ? Well, again, I mean, when we're looking at retirement planning, we're looking at sort of at long-term savings. We're looking at budgeting. How much are we affording to spend now versus save later? And uh, are we using tax-efficient vehicles that we've talked about before, like RSPs, tax-free savings accounts, and then even tax strategies in retirement, like CPP sharing or, or pension splitting? One of the interesting things in the survey was that of the people that did enter into the workforce in retirement, it wasn't always a success. Uh, only a third of people that re-entered the labor market did it successfully at the same level of pay. Uh, the rest of them were only able to enter at a lower level. In fact, a third of them gave up trying. So you can't even budget for the same amount of income uh, as a fallback in retirement. It may not be there. Yeah, that was one of the parts that jumped out to me as well. Like, uh, It's certainly possible to re-enter that job market, but uh, the circumstances probably are going to be different. And if you're coming back for uh, financial motivations, maybe if uh, for intellectually it's a, you're not as worried about it, but you could be coming back and most likely are coming back to a lower salary. Absolutely. And it could also be part-time work, which could be a benefit as well in terms of the number of hours that you want to work. Maybe that's the perfect scenario for some people, but it's certainly not going to be able to replace your full income, uh, even if you want to in, in many situations. If you are in retirement, what are some of the ways people can look towards in terms of uh, getting more money while they are in retirement? 
Well, I think the most important thing is to have a plan in terms of retirement, have a budget, a cash flow statement, how much money is coming in, whether it's Canada Pension Plan, Old Age Security, are you getting a pension from a former employer, um, are you taking money out of your RIF over age 71, what are your various sources of income, and then sit down and take a look at how each of those income is taxed and whether or not you can do some type of tax planning Maybe as simple as splitting pension or RIF withdrawals on a tax return to something that you have to do more proactively, like contacting the government and sharing your Canada pension plan with a spouse or partner. So most important thing to do is speak to a professional, either a financial or a tax advisor or both, and uh, be prepared. You mentioned retirement income. Uh, one of the things I saw from this was uh, the overwhelming majority of Canadians don't know how it's taxed. I certainly don't blame them for maybe uh, younger on not knowing, and it could be you may think it's not uh, different, but it does seem to be different. What should people be aware of in terms of how retirement income is taxed? Yeah, again, most retirement income is, is taxable. I mean, uh, 89% of the people didn't fully know how retirement income was taxed. Uh, some of them even uh, believed, almost 20% thought that Canada Pension Plan benefits were tax-free, and that's certainly not the case. So people have to understand that they are going to pay tax on their uh, retirement income, but there are benefits. Uh, for example, you could be claiming the age credit. You could be claiming the pension credit. There are credits that are available to retirees that may not have been available earlier while you were working. We got a lot of uh, baby boomers out there. Do you think this is going to be uh, maybe a growing issue for a lot of people as we see a lot of people looking at leaving the workforce? Yeah, I think so. I mean, typically speaking, uh, the average age that people uh, said they wanted to retire was around 58, um, but some expected to continue working in some capacity at least till age 62. So I think this issue is going to be with us for a little while. Jamie, I uh, certainly appreciate your time today. Thank you very much. Absolutely. Thank you. That's Jamie Gollenbeck from CIBC. We need to pause. When we come back, we'll have more of London Live. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on 980 CFPL. Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs. Real quick before we get to the audio gem for today, there was a story I saw the other day that is just another example of how uh, cool the earth can be because uh, scientists are really excited about an island that has sprouted out of the water that did not exist four years ago. It's in the Pacific Ocean. It's uh, known as Hunga Tonga. It's only existed for four years, yet already it is populated by hundreds of seabirds and flowering plants whose uh, seeds they believe were dropped there by uh, bird feces. So this is uh, lodged between uh, two existing islands of the uh, Kingdom of Tonga, as I said, in the South Pacific. There was an underwater volcano, and up has sprouted the island. Something like this has not happened in the last 150 years, and they've been able to watch it just move out of the water over the past uh, couple of years. The island did not exist four years ago, and as NASA looks down on that area now, they can see it most clearly and most definitely exists now. So it's uh, pretty cool. Another example of just how uh, neat of an earth we live on. My thanks to uh, David McDonald, to uh, Ronnie Gavsey, to Dr. Robert uh, McElvee, to Sherry Madigan, to uh, Jamie Golubek, uh, Rob Cunningham, and David Shipley for coming on today's show.
Thanks to Matt McInnes for his work on the program. Today's audio gem comes from KTBS in Shreveport, Louisiana. A reporter was doing a tease for his story about how elderly people are exercising, but the phrasing for his tease needed some work. Have a great day. Mike will be back with you tomorrow at 1 o'clock. And tomorrow, again, is Course Radiothon Day. Mike will be live from the uh, Children's Hospital from 1 to 3. Craig will be live from 12, 9 to 12. I will be live from 12 to 1. Please uh, tune in. We appreciate uh, your support. As I said, Mike will be back tomorrow. Have a great day. He'll be with you tomorrow at 1 o'clock. Exercise allows you to live longer and live better. We have proof. Folks in their 90s getting it on. But later on, well, I meant getting their groove on. Anyway.